Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the first episode of The Long War you're so welcome back. It's great to have you. It's great to have you and everyone new as well. If you're just joining us, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, then you are supremely welcome. And if it's one of many, many times you've listened to When Diplomacy Fails before, then it's great to have you back for our very special look at the Long War. That series of interconnected conflicts that waged across Europe between 1679 and 1699. There is so, obviously, there is so much for us to cover in that. But hey, before we get right into that, I need to address something that I very recently addressed, but you may have missed it if you didn't listen to the State of the Podcast address. Basically, to cut a long story short, this podcast is now my job. Well, it's half my job. I'm working part-time on this and part-time for the Leprosy Mission. But yes, When Diplomacy Fails is partially my job now, and that is absolutely incredible. To learn more about that, listen to the State of the Podcast address, but this means great things for When Diplomacy Fails going forward in so many different areas. For one, it means I'll have more time to do podcasting in general, do research, etc. But it also means that there's a great opportunity to invest my time and money and resources and energy into getting When Diplomacy Fails as big as it can possibly be, which has always been the aim. And you can help with that too, as of course you know, this podcast is a listener-supported podcast. It's brought to fans of When Diplomacy Fails just like you. We bring it to you every single Monday, everywhere you might get your podcasts from, whether it's Podcast Addict, which is my boo personally, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or anything else. Apparently I'm not on Google Play because I'm not American and that has to do with it. But anyway... That is everywhere else is where When Diplomacy Fails is. So go and check us out. Go and listen to our back catalogue, etc. And get a feel for what When Diplomacy Fails is all about and who Zach Twomley is. You can, of course, go to WDFpodcast.com to find out more. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. And if you're feeling in the mood to contribute to what is now my income for my living and my wife's living, although she's working too, But if you would like to contribute towards that, then the best way to do that is to join Patreon, guys, and you'll get some pretty sweet rewards back as well. I should let you guys know that all patrons at this very moment in time, all patrons at the $2 level, will get this podcast a week before everyone else. Which means that if you were to sign up right now, rather than just getting one episode of The Long War, you would get two. As if you need more of me in your life, but if you do... That is what you have to go and do. Go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails 
or go to wdfpodcast.com and click on the Patreon banner. Or, of course, you can just look in the description of this episode. All the links, as usual, will be there. It's a very exciting time to be a fan, to be a listener, to be a patron of When Diplomacy Fails, and I'm so super glad to have you. I'm also so super glad to begin our analysis of The Long War. It's probably the longest conflict we've ever sank our teeth into, but it really will It'll give us a nice bit of closure to the era of Louis XIV that, well, even just the 17th century, which we've really been a big part of for the last nearly four years, really, guys. So it's been a long time coming that we close out this century, and I'm so looking forward to doing it with all of you. With that being said, I just want to get into this. Let's get into the long war with the special music and the high hopes and everything else. It's great to have you guys, and I can't wait to talk to you all about the long war. Welcome back to When Diplomacy Fails, episode 30, The Long War, part 1. Note that we're not giving you a weirdly codified number system whereby each episode will somehow magically fit into a formula that makes it through the number 30 in a series of contrived decimal points. You see, that's because I'm not entirely sure how many episodes we have in store for you guys in this war or series of wars. So rather than limit ourselves, we're just going to go ahead with it and see where it leads us. With that technical stuff done, I'd like to say a huge welcome back, of course. Welcome back to everyone who has joined up with When Diplomacy Fails and supported us over the last few months. If you're here because you found us during our crazy five-year birthday extravaganza, then welcome, guys. And if you're here because you're a long-time history friend and you just want me to get on with it now, welcome also. I'm so glad to have you all here. I'm so glad to have this opportunity to once again sink my teeth into the Sun King. Let's not waste any time then in the aftermath of the most trying but also arguably spectacular war in his reign. I will now take you to 1679, where the pieces of Europe and its peace seem to be coming apart again. One can say that it was there that the king appeared as the master of Europe. He could virtually choose between subjugating it and granting it peace. He preferred peace to war, and his action was masterly. Charles Auguste, the Marquis de la Fere, writing on Louis XIV's behaviour at the Peace of Nijmegen in his memoirs, published in 1715. The struggle had been a difficult one, but Louis XIV of France could reason that his war against first the Dutch and then the alliances of Europe had been successful. To begin with, he had emerged as the supremely triumphant figurehead of European politics. He was the recognised opponent of the Habsburgs in both branches, 
and in a stronger position militarily and economically than any of his Bourbon predecessors. On top of this, genuine gains in French territory, particularly along the Franche Comté, had pushed French borders further, while the addition of select towns in the Spanish Netherlands with fortresses to match had reinforced French security and created an acceptable and defensible frontier which Louis's great military engineer, Vauban, could definitively work with. All of these were things to be proud of in Louis's mind, as he could claim to have arrived by the time the Peace of Nijmegen was signed with the Dutch, and then everyone else, over late 1678 to mid-1679. Indeed, he could present his policies during that war as one of complete success, while his reign would be exalted as that of a Sun King, an all-important monarch around which the rest of the continent's concerns were said to revolve. So important had the King of France become that nobody could now dare to move without first considering the actions of Louis XIV. Yet, for all that chest-puffing and immense positivity, there was much to be concerned about as well. It didn't take a particularly perceptive individual to denote that Louis's plans were drastically overtaken by external events from 1673 onwards. The image of an easy war which Louis had planned alongside his cousin, Charles II of Britain, wherein the Dutch Republic would be destroyed and France and England would divvy up the spoils, had been altogether shattered. Thanks to unforeseen resilience within that small republic, the Dutch first flooded their lands and then overthrew their formerly republican institutions to install an altogether different regime. This different regime was a stark contrast from the regent-controlled government of the last two decades, and installing it required the gruesome and tragic deaths of the two Dutch patriots in the De Witt family. It's still too soon, but this was necessary to ensure its forceful success, and for all that, by the end of 1672, the Dutch Republic was ruled not by regents of a different manner, but by Orangists. Though on the surface it seemed as though a profound change had been occasioned, the ascension of the 22-year-old William of Orange to the position of Stadtholder and Captain General was merely the latest development in the ongoing struggle in the Netherlands between the regents and the Orangists, yet having said that, what William of Orange proceeded to do was anything but business as usual. The half-Dutch, half-English young adult, with his firm sense of mission and tenacious personality, confronted the Anglo-French threat with a melancholy determination and firmness that left his English uncle empty-handed and his French nemesis dumbfounded. William managed to brutally rally the country behind him, and through some feverish diplomacy and spirited resistance, stood up against the submerged battle line of Holland which Johann de Witt had established. From this uncompromising position which required Louis and Charles to physically come and take that which could not be taken, William and his inner circle managed to hold firm and frustrate the initial French advance until external threats began to persuade the French high command that little could be gained through sitting in the waterlogged mess that the Dutch front had become. With the Holy Roman Emperor and Spanish on the move, and with the Imperial Diet declaring war against France in unison in May 1674, the dynamic of the war plainly changed. Conflict was taken away from the Dutch border and forced into other areas. With this, the immediate threat to Dutch sovereignty, and thus the primary French aim of the war in the first place, receded, as did the water in the Netherlands. 
However, it was to the credit of Louis' generals and bureaucrats that they were able to turn this technical defeat into a success. Once the war moved from the flooded fields of Holland and into the spheres of the Rhine, the Spanish Netherlands and the Pyrenees, the Allies found it immensely difficult to forge a unified policy against Louis. Furthermore, the French found it increasingly easy to concentrate their larger unified forces against Allied targets. It was to be the Spanish possessions in the Netherlands which absorbed much of this fury as town after a fortified town fell to the French invader. All the while, Vauban was at hand to direct and cultivate a proper defensive strategy for the future, and huge swathes of German lands were put under contributions to pay for the increases in French army size and ambition which followed. The science of making war feed war was fully felt in the French border areas, as French commanders ventured out in search of underdefended regions which would pay top dollar to be left alone. Some regions were unfortunate and deliberate victims of this policy as the Palatinate burned, as did regions around Luxembourg while the French sought to starve that great fortress city out. There was cause for concern elsewhere as Alsace and Lorraine proved resilient to French demands and Marshal Turenne, of course, lost his life in 1675 while attempting to outmanoeuvre his imperial rival, Raimondo Montecugli. Still, the award of the coolest name in the whole Franco-Dutch war goes to him. While French forces were continually shifted around, a few final pushes were made in a bid to exert as much pressure as possible on the Allies. After a few false starts and some deceptive diplomacy, a peace was forged between first the French and Dutch, and shortly thereafter everyone else. Even as his military success in the latter phases of the war seemed to handily paper over the earlier failures, Louis believed that the gains France received were not sufficient tokens for what had been done. Although a peace was signed at Nijmegen, Louis was likely already plotting his next phase of expansion. Something useful which he had learned during his earlier war of devolution against Spain in the late 1660s was the concept of preying upon a sole target while others were distracted. Similarly, if one member of the previous alliance could be preyed upon and the others elected to bow out, Louis could gain some serious benefit without the threat of a coalition war. On the other hand, the sheer bluntness of taking through force what he couldn't gain through diplomacy also appealed to Louis, so that was convenient. Certain targets were absolutely in mind for this strategy. Critical bridgeheads over the Rhine above all had proved a massive headache for French strategists in previous years. Strasbourg will come up a lot, but it had consistently threatened French interior security owing to its willingness to allow imperial troops over its bridges. Strasbourg, in Louis's mind, thus had to go. If the Rhine could be secured, then a great weight would be lifted from the minds of his ministers and commanders, but to seize it successfully would require a fait accompli. There could be no question of an Allied response. It would have to be done and seized quickly before anyone had any time to react. With his long-term goal in mind, Louis set about reshuffling his ministry. Above all, the foreign minister, Simone Arnaud, Marquis de Pontpon, had to go. You see, in Louis XIV's mind, when it came to selecting scapegoats for the recent gains in the war, which he didn't see as particularly impressive considering the French sacrifices, none was better positioned to take the fall for the lacklustre returns than Pompon, who had not demanded or received sufficient nuggets at the peace table for Louis to consider renewing his contract. 
Patrons at the $5 level will have access to an extra episode detailing the fascinating career of Ponpon over the previous years, that is, before he got himself fired in 1678 and some time afterwards. You see, Ponpon will also make a return to our story in the 1690s, so he is a pretty important figure for the era. But for now, Louis was content to dismiss him, saying that in his own words, A lofty heart is difficult to make content and cannot be fully satisfied, except by glory. Louis complained too that Pompon lacked the grandeur and force one should have in executing the orders of a king of France, who was not unfortunate. He felt that his foreign minister's desire to please and his goodness, combined with his weakness, stubbornness and lack of tenacity, had cost him dearly at Nijmegen. Ponpon was also a victim of the ongoing rivalry between the Colbert family and that of Louvois. Colbert, as Minister for Finance and Controller General of the Navy, desired to acquire Ponpon's post for his brother Charles, that is, Charles Colbert, the former ambassador to London, while Louvois, as Minister for War, wished to amalgamate the office of Foreign Minister with that of his own, because yeah, his portfolio just wasn't big enough yet. With both men sensing that Pompon was not in Louis's good graces at that immediate moment in September 1679, the two great rivals were for once united in their aims. With Pompon gone from office, they could fight over it between themselves. And in the event, Pompon's exit was a largely amicable one. And while Louis did of course exaggerate that moderate foreign minister's contributions towards the dissatisfying peace terms in his own mind, it is still remarkable that Pompon was so reconciled with the king that he was allowed to see him again the following March, so barely half a year after he'd last been dismissed. While Louis was certainly one to hold grudges, it seemed as though even he could not deny or do away with someone who possessed the diplomatic talents of Pompon. Within a decade, to put it in perspective, both Colbert and Louvois would be gone, but Pompon would be back in his old office once again. Parking the image of the plucky and talented Pompon for a moment, let's focus on Louis' immediate concerns for foreign policy gains once Charles Colbert was appointed foreign minister in late 1679. To begin with, Louis desired to further expand his borders and take in strategic towns like Strasbourg and Luxembourg, ideally without violence. Yet, Louis also desired to expand in North Italy to take additional towns in the Spanish Netherlands and consolidate the border with Spain along the Pyrenees. So pretty much everything then. Further concerns abounded in the will-they-won't-they status of Alsace and Lorraine, two territories still technically under the jurisdiction of the Holy Roman Emperor, yet concerning such important cities as the aforementioned Strasbourg. In short, Louis and his ministers would have possessed a laundry list of goals when they sat down to analyse where the French focus was to be directed next. Unfortunately for them, they were greatly aided, not merely by the disunity and weakness of their neighbours, but by the very vagueness of treaty terminology. Treaties in the 17th century, and, well, before that of course as well, were deliberately vague. There were a number of reasons why treaties were not intended to serve as the final clear-cut word on a given issue. Above all, if a treaty was perfectly crystal clear, then paradoxically they would often provide ample opportunities for disagreement, resentment and, crucially, a delay in peacemaking. On the other hand, if a peace treaty, however vague its terminology proved to be, could be arrived at, 
and if the parties concerned could all believe that they in fact had the upper hand or that certain terms favoured them when in fact those terms were highly debatable, then such an outcome was often seen as preferable because it left the door open for settlement in the future. That such settlement often involved armed conflict was less of a concern than giving immediate ground to one's rivals at the peace table. Thus, in the strange world of foreign competition and in the 17th century as we see here, peace treaties like Westphalia, for example, which were heralded as great steps forward in peaceful diplomacy, could actually be full of holes if one found a microscope and then focused on them intently enough. What a coincidence, then, that in the case of the Peace of Nijmegen and in the Peace of Westphalia, focusing a microscope was exactly what Louis XIV intended to do. A great example about this vagueness is given by John A. Lynn, revolving around the idea of dependencies, whereby as per the terms of a treaty, a given power will be granted rights over a certain city and its dependencies, without actually making clear to either side what those dependencies were. Rather than agreeing to a concrete set of terms, the parties agreed to settle for their own interpretations of those terms. This tendency for vagueness meant that Louis, for example, could argue that in the case of the Spanish Netherlands, that in a given town or fortress which had been ceded, as per the Peace of Nijmegen, that such a town's dependencies concerned not merely that town and some farms outside it, but also these hamlets down the road, this river crossing right here, and in fact this fortress, designed to hold the whole region in check as well. How convenient for all of us. No one had any illusions about how legitimate or illegitimate Louis' claims were, of course, but they couldn't decry his actions either, since, as a practice, the act of purposely misinterpreting or ignoring certain treaty provisions was ancient. Louis was merely continuing the diplomatic traditions of his ancestors, yet, as his neighbours were soon to discover, the King of France was willing to go one better than simply exploit some treaty's vagueness. In time, Louis aimed at the whole-scale tearing up of said treaty, but before this was possible he would have to tread a little carefully, lest he attract unwanted attentions. Louis also benefited from the fact that during his age the very concept, not merely of treaties but also of borders, was in a state of flux. There was no concept of national borders, of a state's influence reaching to a certain extent. Although it is often the custom to point to the Peace of Westphalia as having achieved a greater understanding of these technicalities, a vagueness in where one's borders and certainly one's sphere of influence ended provided a constant source of friction and confusion. The very concept of state borders was in a state of evolution at this point, and this process would eventually end in our idea of what a state should look like and where the borders of France should end and those of Germany begin. But as Peter Salins in his article on French borders noted, such concepts were not so clear-cut in the 17th century. So when we speak of borders, it's important not to lose our own sense of what the... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Word meant, and especially what it meant to people in the 17th century. Instead of more importance to rulers like Louis XIV was the judicial reach of his intendants, how far his kingdom's writ could be said to run both within and without his lands, as well as the military limits wherein troops could be raised. When we tackle the subject of religious peasant and noble revolt in later episodes, we'll see that even within what we consider as France today, portions of the kingdom such as in the troubled Languedoc region were difficult to administer and in some spheres retained many of their own laws, customs and traditions. If we want to bring this process further, look at what Napoleon is famous for with his Code Napoleon. That system which codified the laws of France into a unified and unitary set of laws and principles was highly significant. Such an act went a long way towards centralising France and bringing the kings, or in Napoleon's case the emperors, writ into different regions. This concept of bringing his authority further was far more important to Louis XIV than simply drawing a line in the sand and saying, within this France, outside of this, everyone else. Another reason for this is that French borders were not so easy to settle, and they'd been expanded and pushed back for many centuries to the point that many individuals both in Louis's inner circle and in Vienna, for example, had widely differing opinions about where the actual state of France, so to speak, could be said to exist, and where Louis could not claim to have any rights or rule or command whatsoever. On top of all these technicalities, we must remember as well that numerous claims could exist in a given region. Not only that, but different zones even within what we today would consider France, such as Alsace-Lorraine or the Franche Comté, contained their own histories, traditions and miniature statelets, wherein different families and even relatives would have to be consulted. Thanks to the head-wrecking laws of succession in German lands, a father's territories could be split between as many as five different sons, who themselves would have sons, and then the next thing you know you're looking at a patchwork of states, that overlap and contradict each other, particularly if these sons and their brothers happened to not get on or want the side of the river of your family, etc. If we add someone like Louis XIV to the mix, who could cajole or coerce the rulers living here to hand their claims to him in return for a monetary greasing of the wheels, then everything becomes further contrived. That said, thanks mostly to the concentration of power in the hands of Louis XIV, and the need to combat the power of the French, rulers were coming to clarify where their writ ended and where it began, if for no other reason than to make marching against the French easier when it came down to it. 
This process, as we said, was evolving ever so gradually to produce a system whereby rulers were being drawn, though to add even more fun to the mix, these borders would often contain caveats pertaining to the length of rule or progeny of the ruler, or as we saw during the Thirty Years' War, the ruler's religion. Lin summarises the ever-so-gradual paradigm shift in European history from the feudal to the national, saying, For Cardinal Richelieu, a proper frontier opened neighbouring territory to invasion or influence. Thus, he sought fortresses as gates to provide access for French armies. Such a conception of frontier required footholds on the right bank of the Rhine or across the Alps in Italy. Louis continued this policy, but it came to be overshadowed by the notion of a frontier as a barrier to an enemy, with fortresses less valuable in providing gates than in forming an impenetrable wall that protected and defined a border. In short then, the policy of gathering as many crossings, strategic passes and critical footholds in further territory, with the express purpose of expansion in mind, came to be replaced by a policy largely inspired and cultivated by Vauban. Vauban was adamant that territory for the sake of it would merely weaken the security of France, since these regions would have to be garrisoned, their populations coerced and the area properly insulated against foreign attack. If France was instead protected by her expansion rather than overstretched, then success in the wars Louis' realm endured would be both more successful and less costly. At least this was the idea. When Vauban surveyed the outcome of the Dutch War in autumn 1679, he would have denoted the fortifications of the Rhine, thanks to the incorporation of the French Comte, yet Alsace and Lorraine remained problematic. To the north, in the Spanish Netherlands, he envisioned a set of fortress lines, which would insulate France from invasion in the future. These fortifications were set into three distinct lines, with the third and final line made up mostly of barriers and walls running across the countryside rather than tough, fortified nuts that the Allies would have to crack, as in the first and second lines. The idea was that in a given portion of Flanders, a concentrated and interlocking series of well-provisioned, well-defended and intelligently built fortresses would guard against anything that the Allies could throw at France. From the Channel Coast to the Meuse River, the French would occupy and maintain a series of fortifications cut into the countryside as a kind of double line of settlements, packed with troops and bristling with guns. In spring 1679, as the final touches were being put on peace with the Emperor, Vauban noted, The frontier towards the Low Countries lies open and disordered as a consequence of the recent peace. There is no doubt that it will be necessary to establish a new frontier and fortify it well so that it closes the approaches into our country to an enemy while giving us access to him. Louis was content to listen to the man he had recently appointed as his Inspector General for Fortifications because Vauban had served him so well in the past. We go into all these issues in far more detail in the extra episodes, more specifically Louis XIV's Arms and Armies, so check that out if you're a $5 patron, or perhaps subscribe and be a $5 patron if you would like to check them out. But there's no harm either way in reminding people now to the extent to which Vauban envisioned the future borders of France developing. He added to his previous recommendations on exactly what kind of settlements and form this defensive barrier should take, saying, The fortified points that compose it 
will secure the river crossings for us and provide communication between the local government districts. That the fortified places should be large enough to contain not only the munitions required for their own defence, but also the supplies needed if we invade enemy territory. If we assume all of these necessary conditions, it appears that the frontier would be very well protected if its defences were reduced to two lines of fortifications on the model of any army's order of battle, as follows. And of course, within this extract, Vauban goes on to list the recent fortified towns and settlements won through the war with the Dutch, and to detail their position in the fortified line which came to be known as the Fence of Iron. It was this fence, to put it in perspective, that essentially blocked and held up the Allies during the heady days of the War of the Spanish Succession, even while every other aspect of the French war effort in that conflict seemed to crumble. For that reason alone, Vauban's vision and contribution to French history is astounding, but to our more immediate concerns, his vision required not merely consolidation, but explicit advice on how to wage future wars. Expansion for the sake of it wouldn't do. French forces should surge forward and hold important positions for strategic reasons, not because they wished to conquer them alone. As far as Vauban was concerned, it was imperative the French borders were as set as the concrete fortifications upon which French security so depended. The only time Vauban would argue for the aggrandizement of French borders was in the case that such expansion would actually increase French security. Thus the caveat remained that certain nuts remained out of the reach of Louis. Such as Luxembourg and Strasbourg above all, as well as some smaller towns of significance along the Spanish Netherlands line. So long as he desired to acquire these remained, one could be sure that Vauban would find grounds to persuade his master to move forward in the future. Before 1679 was over, in fact, the foundations for such expansion would be laid. The decision to establish three important chambers of reunion to deal with contested border regions and consolidate the French border in three critical areas, Franche Comte, Alsace and Lorraine, was a byproduct of the era. Without the vague situation which realms like Louis existed within, France would never have gotten away with creating councils designed explicitly to cajole and bribe their way through expansion in these key regions. Even while bilateral negotiations did take place, and French and Spanish delegates met to discuss the Spanish-Netherlands border region, as per the terms of the Treaty of Nijmegen, the chambers of reunion were stuffed with pliant officials, effectively charged with ensuring that Louis could expand his land safely within the realm of legality, however iffy that legality seemed. In three towns, Metz, Brysac and Besançon, the issues of expansion, legality and interpretation were discussed. The primary aim of the three chambers remained the same, namely to take advantage of the vague treaty articles in place and interpret French claims as paramount, bringing in arguments and lines of reasoning that emphasised the old connections of the contested regions to France. Thus the concept of reuniting these places back with France could be declared good and just, hence the designation of these chambers as chambers of reunion. Whatever goodness and justice the inhabitants of the contested regions could not believe in or see themselves, brute force, bribery and alternative means of intimidation would more than make up the balance. This was, to summarise, how Louis planned to achieve his ends. 
Let's see how we got on in brief with the three regions in question. Within METS, the Chamber discussed the touchy issue of Lorraine, which we'll look into in more detail in the next episode. Here the situation was one approaching crisis for two reasons. First, the Treaties of Westphalia had ceded the Habsburgs' claims over Lorraine and Alsace to the French Bourbons, but it had expressly avoided defining what these claims or rights actually were, as was the custom of the day. Thus, the inhabitants of these regions considered themselves part of the Holy Roman Empire, and certainly did not consider Louis their overlord when the French were on shaky legal ground. The French claims were often presented as holding the rights of influence or the rights of defence over a given territory. So when it came to our second point, and Louis' forceful ejection of the Duke in 1670, it shouldn't surprise you to learn that the Duke was very unhappy and cried foul, while Louis claimed he was in his rights. Lorraine was too important to leave in a vague state of flux, yet the French would have a successive chain of problems imposing their authority there. By 1697 they would be compelled, as per the Peace of Ryswick that ended the War of the Grand Alliance, which we will get to, don't you worry, they would be compelled to hand the territory of Lorraine back to the Duke's descendant, who at that stage had made his name fighting against the French. In the case of Franche Comte, formerly under Spanish control as the Free County of Burgundy, thus harking back to a bygone era in and of itself, the situation was somewhat more straightforward. France had been awarded the territory of Franche Comte as per the terms of the Peace of Nijmegen in 1678, but to consolidate French security here, it proved necessary to cajole and persuade a number of towns further east to cooperate with the French too. Louis was able to do this because, again, think of the vagueness of the era, he was able to dispute what the French Comte precisely meant, and where the borders or limits of that territory could be delineated. Today, French Comte appears smaller than Louis' obsession with it would suggest, but as it also forms much of the border with the Swiss and snakes down along the Rhine, we can understand at least to some extent why Louis so concerned himself with expanding its reach and then ensuring its integrity. It was an added buffer against whatever the Imperials might throw at him, while it was also mountainous and prosperous enough to send much protected taxation into his coffers. As the law of the era went, if Louis did not hold the French Comte, one could be certain that someone else would, and perhaps one of the greatest advantages in seizing it after the Dutch War was that Spain could no longer threaten Louis from this direction, as it once had. The final chamber of reunion in Alsace was centred on Brysac, and it was here that perhaps the most sensitive and strategically important expansion took place. The Rhine crossings and the threat this posed to French security tormented Louis, and persuaded him, after witnessing so many imperial crossings over Strasbourg in particular, that the whole region had to be his, and securely his, for the sake of French security in the future. Again, Louis could manipulate the vagueness of treaties because France had officially been given jurisdiction over Alsace as per the terms of the Peace of Westphalia, even while much of the region was determinedly independently minded. The seemingly endless saga of Alsace-Lorraine was effectively born out of the complicated, winding sets of agreements and inheritances which resulted in independent cities such as Strasbourg existing while large swathes of the territory were supposedly in the French sphere of influence and at Louis' discretion. That was how Louis saw it at least, 
and he compelled a number of the Alsatian nobility to swear fealty to him instead of the Emperor, while he also intimidated several towns and settlements on the far side of the Rhine to cooperate as well. Louis was able to do this because even if the sacred Strasbourg resisted, since it was in the strongest position to do so, his officials sitting on these chambers of reunion gave him the legal justification to act. On the surface, Louis could claim that he was merely reuniting lands that had once been and were now under the authority of France, thanks to the iffy terms of treaties and the unclear nature of borders, sovereignty and jurisdiction, French claims were pushed ahead with more weight than had previously been applied to the issue in regions where smaller towns and principalities just had no answer. It of course helped that this weight was provided by French armed forces, far beyond the size of any that the smaller towns could provide. The Chambers of Reunion thus quickly became a handy system through which Louis could justify whatever expansion he envisioned, as long as the lands could claim to have a historic connection to what the king defined as France. While these days it seems reasonable to claim that Alsace-Lorraine and the Franche Comté were integral parts of France, a look at the map of Europe reveals that they all reside to the east of the French border and in sensitive regions, mostly along the Rhine. Today certainly these regions are French, but we shouldn't forget that in the early 1680s these regions were mostly independent and they would have remained so had French diplomacy, militancy and expansion not so changed the map of Europe. Louis' daring and the extent to which he planned on wielding these chambers of reunion became clear when we consider that, before long, he had turned his attention towards another target historically not within the sphere of French influence, Luxembourg. As 1679 became 1680, it seemed likely that, far from an instrument of noble peace, the chambers of reunion, wouldn't you know it, were merely the latest in a series of steps towards conflict. Soon, it seemed, the armies of Europe would have to be ready to march once again. Thanks for listening to our first episode back since our long summer hiatus, history friends. I hope you've enjoyed our take on the beginning of the end of the Peace of Nijmegen, even while at one stage Louis had also seemed so set on ending the previous war. But how would Europe react? Well, tune in next time, because we're going to examine what happened once the Chamber of Reunions got out of hand, through the convenient lens of the Duchy of Lorraine. A reminder that this episode was released in a bundle alongside the second episode, because the patrons are always a week ahead, so for those patrons listening right now, go and check it out if you like your listening in a bunch. Well, for my regular listeners, maybe you'll think about checking us out on Patreon if you like extra content and not having to wait for the good stuff. Remember that patrons are always one week ahead, and that from $2 a month, you too could avail of this early listening perk. For further perks, including an hour of extra content every month, a fiver will get you all the upcoming extra episodes on Louis XIV's Religion and Reign, the Religious Revolts to Come, and a special biography on Jan Sobieski, which will keep us watered as we enter into legendary Polish history tales. I hope you'll consider joining me there then, but either way, I hope you've enjoyed our foray back into this era of ours. Now, with that being said, I'm hoping that you enjoyed the episode, and if you did, then that's fantabulous, but you should know that, yes, I did mention at the start that this podcast is now partially my job, but I forgot to mention that it's been a long time since we've listed off the wonderful people that make it possible for this to be my job. I'm talking, of course, about the patrons. And I have not been talking about patrons or listing their names off 
since the epilogue of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered, which, yes, was over two months ago. So we've got a few people to talk about. So if you're one of those lovely patrons who signed up after the 26th of June 2017, then this is your time to shine. Look at you. Okay, so... Starting from the 27th of June, a man who just could not make it in there in time, Mr. Mark W., who's a diplomat. Then we have Neil S., diplomat. Ophir Orr, student of diplomacy. Jacob B., student of diplomacy. Yao, MC, diplomat. Burnell S., embassy intern. Claudia K., Catherine the Great. Our first Catherine the Great, in fact, so we're very, very happy to have you on. Charles M. Attaché, S. Parks, Diplomat, Bill Orr, Diplomat, Scott Attaché, Chad H., Diplomat, Charles D., Diplomat, Harry A., Diplomat, Patrick M., Diplomat, Richard C., Diplomat, Jacob E., Student of Diplomacy, Jeremy M., Diplomat, Demetrio M., Diplomat, Donna S., Envoy Extraordinaire, Matthew J, Diplomat, John W, Embassy Intern, Isaac C, Attaché, Abdi F, Diplomat, Richard L, Diplomat, Chris G, Ambassador, thanks for signing up, that is the $10 level, so that's pretty awesome. should also mention that the Catherine the Great Patreon level is $22 a month, and you get a mug with Catherine the Great's face on it. What more could you want with your life? But anyway, Stephen P, Diplomat, David K, Diplomat, James D, Diplomat, Pretty sure that the embassy is full of diplomats at this stage, but it's all good. Then we have Alexander Z, Ambassador, and that's pretty awesome. And then we have our first ever $4 patron, John H., who's the charge a de faire. So congratulations to you, John, because you were the first ever guy to pay $4. Not really sure why you'd pay $4. Maybe you're just not in the mood for all the extra stuff, but you want to give a little bit more than the 2 or $3. But thanks very much for signing up, and thanks to all you guys for signing up. I am quite open to the idea of reading your names out here i got asked before but i only say the first letter of your surname and the reason for that is because i've been told in the past that oh you should not read or you should not state people's full names on your website because you could be liable for whatever i don't know but who am i kidding it's not like billions of people listen to this and you're going to get found out and whatever you do so if you guys would like let me know and i'll happily read out your full names sorry to those people that don't get their full names read out but i'm sure you don't do it for i'm sure you don't become a patron for those measly few seconds of so-called fame so anyway i'd just like to say a huge thanks to you guys for listening and i hope all those new patrons enjoy their extra special goodies Alrighty, this has been When Diplomacy Fails. My name is Zach Twomley, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.